I don't like the word leadership. I use the word adhesion. So what's really important in terms of a concept or even a working method is that we have an adhesion to what it is that we're doing. Everyone says in management that there should no, be no silos. I completely disagree. Learn from other people and go learn other stuff, even if it doesn't seem like it's a toolbox. Or another thing is if, if you do it really, really well, it's amazing how powerful that is. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. On this episode, we'll be talking about producing a show with Matthew Jesner. Matthew Jesner is an artistic director and a creative producer with an extensive performance background. He has experience in both theatrical and corporate productions from concept to delivery. He has worked managing artists, singers, actors, dancers, elite performance athletes, and has experienced hiring, developing, and managing high-level operation teams. Hello, Matthew. Welcome. Hello. How are you? We're doing good. We're happy to have you. Very excited to have you on the show, Matthew, especially because you're one of my good friends and we've known you for years and I know you have a lot to share with us today. So um, let's start by you telling us a little bit about your career. Easily. I started uh, my artistic career uh, as a performer. I started dancing after having done quite a few years of martial arts. I started dancing at the age of 18, which is a bit late, obviously but I had a physical background before. And then at that time in those generations, as a male dancer, basically all of the doors uh, flung wide open for those of us that wanted to dance. And I was very, very fortunate to participate in a lot of repertory in the United States at the time when there was a very effervescent climate of, uh, of classical ballet, which was not only the white tights and the tutus, it was really quite a, a vibrant period. And I was very, very fortunate to experience theater through that uh, aspect. And one of the things that was from the very beginning is I was always highly curious about everything else around the stage environment and not so much fascinated with the roadies and all the rest of it. I mean, there was, of course, that respect, but I would always watch rehearsals in terms of what was happening in terms of lighting or all the rest of it in the theater. So I guess in, from a very early point, I was quite curious about the, the specifics of what was happening on stage as well as the general artistic context. Anyway, many years of, of, of classical dance, uh, few, quite a few years of musical comedy, and I didn't know that I could sing. Actually, I couldn't. And then bits and bobs of all different things. And uh, I kind of stumbled into uh, casting for actually Disney, but not casting necessarily characters and all the rest of it. We did that as well casting actors and people for film, backup voices, and just kind of kept moving it around. And then I uh, started working with the Cirque du Soleil for five years. I was the resident artistic director of the show Salty Banco on tour for a five-year period. And again, it was an entirely new uh, world indeed, not even just theatrically, but also in terms of the, the performance vocabulary. So I delved into that quite deeply because it was fascinating and beautiful uh, to see how that all worked. Being on tour was not a mystery. Anyway, that's one thing. And then I think that I've never had any ambition to like climb up some sort of odd ladder of authority and be doing things. But I guess I was just kind of willing and audacious. 
And so from Saltimbanco, I wound up working in the Franco Dagon Entertainment Group, and we produced the show The House of Dancing Water in, uh, in Macau. I would have never hired myself, but they did. And we kind of grew with it as it grew. I think that it, had I known what I would need to acquire in terms of knowledge to be able to manage what I actually had on my plate, I would have never been able to do it, and no one would have ever given it to me. But as we often all did, we rose as the water rose, and we acquired knowledge as the knowledge became necessary, and we had the time to develop, really. It was much more than a, a skill set. It actually turned out to be quite enriching in many, uh, in many ways. And then after that, I've, for the last decade, I've been sort of taking care of that show as well as many others, but from a lot of different um, avenues, some of them having to do with really very dry operational human resources legal stuff. Uh, down to immigration, down to, again, casting, and then putting all that back and going back into the rehearsal studio and working directly on the performance material itself. Anyway, so that's a hopefully quick enough description. How did you find, though, uh, you know, because going from a performing background into sort of more management positions, was that an easy transition for you to make? You know, because you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily in a performing career cultivating any management skills or producing skills. So, you know, how did that trajectory happen and how did you acquire those skills for those people who are like looking to exit from a performance career into that kind of realm? Well, the rigor of a performing career, you don't have to start over when you go into something else. You add to what your skill set already is. So there were two things that were beneficial for myself. First of all, I already knew how to work hard because you have to work hard to acquire knowledge. Just being nearby doesn't happen. You have to go home and you have to work on it. I mean, study the templates, learn the stuff, read voraciously and do all that. That's number one. And second of all, for myself, I already had a herding instinct. So taking care of something that was bigger than myself or an, and a, even a rehearsal was a, a pretty direct conjugation of that idea. So I think for anyone who wants to branch into that, uh, it's important. There's nothing wrong with being an apprentice or being an assistant. Do that. Find somebody that does that well. Glue them. Glue yourself to them. And if they're really good teachers, they won't ask you to make coffee because when you're making coffee, you're not learning anything. But work hard. <laughs> Read a lot. Observe. Both. Observe things that don't work. And then at one point, don't be afraid to be a bit cheeky and come forward with propositions. Because when your proposition gets denied, you learn from what that's not. But when it gets accepted, you're already contributing to the momentum of that learning. Hmm. And going even back, how do you transition from martial art to, to ballet and to dance and the performing arts? What got you into this? Exposure. I, there's there's no possible substitute for curiosity and passion. And in my opinion, passion is not some inflammatory state that happens. It's a very, very determined thing. It's not some sort of capricious, emotional, sentimental thing. It's like a glacier. A glacier is ice, but it like just goes down the valley. And if there's not a valley, it makes one, <laughs> you know? So this idea that passion is something that happens very ephemeral and very capricious, I think is insane. So it's a very deep-seated dedication to what you do, and the discipline to what you do is only the mechanism. I mean, it's just the mechanics of discipline. So if you're curious and passionate, you will cross many, many things in your life. And then you can even, don't worry about, I'm a dancer, but I'm not a martial artist. I mean, how many people aspire to the triple threat? Well, the triple threat is actually the idea of actually 
I guess, a, not only a mastery of different avenues, but then the conjugation of them. So you don't but have to divide your brain into sectors. The whole idea is that you have a cognitive association, and that happens artistically as well. The cognitive association is what actually makes your richness more than just the individual skill sets that you have. Being, knowing how to use a drill and a hammer is great, but you're not a carpenter because you're a driller or because you have a hammer. You're a carpenter because you know how to put all that together. We call it craft. It is a craft, and and I, I love uh, many of the conversations that we've had, uh, not only on what we do, but how or why we do what we do in in, in entertainment. And so, what what do you think? What do you consider the role of live entertainment is in our society today? I know that's a big question to answer, but um, you know, it's important for us, especially in this period of time when people are not working a lot and they're reassessing their lives to sort of say, well, why, why do we do what we do and what, what, how does um, entertainment play into society? I think it's, it's either extremely simple or extremely complex. So I'm trying to go simple. The role of society, our societies are multifaceted and multi-levels. And I don't mean levels in a hierarchic sense in terms of being sophisticated because it's Shakespeare or being less so because it's something that's more entertainment. There's something of, of intrinsic value to people feeling good. That's a good thing. There's also something of intrinsic value to people interrogating themselves because they've been stimulated by a piece of theater. And I don't really attach a value judgment to that in terms of ponderation. So I think that the diversity of our societies and the diversity of our cultural and entertainment offerings need to be just as nuanced. And the most important responsibility we have is to not cater to, but be sensitive to which, what is your audience? So when we use the word in casting, an audition, the word audition in French, audition, means to listen. So you're actually there not to judge someone, but to listen to them in terms of what they have to say. So when I do casting, I tell people, this is an audition. I'm here to listen to you. And I'm here to create an, a context that is favorable for you to say something to me. Say something to me. Don't perform for me in an audition. And the same thing is true in, in the way that we produce. If we're producing a musical, we're going to try to produce a musical of quality. We're going to try to produce a musical to the scope and scale that it is, and then hopefully try to push the boundaries just enough so that there's actually something additional to say. And if we're going to be producing a theme park show, which is going to be doing five times a day, 20 minutes, in, out, in, out, in, out, but it's actually a, a link in the chain onto something else, it's a completely different offering. So I think our responsibility in terms of entertainment and cultural, which is a wide gamut, is to be able to go from rolling on the floor eating a banana to working in Disney. And we need to be sensitive to what it is that we're doing. That is our challenge. So in terms of producing the, this, producing the show, what are the different stages? Let's get us a little bit out of the, the philosophical contact and get more pragmatic. And so how do you produce and what are the stages? And I'm sure it was, it's going to be completely different if we're talking about this Disney show or this musical you were using as a reference well, earlier. Uh, obviously, we want to produce shows for audiences. So you identify your demographics and you identify where that is. Is it territory you're going to be on tour? One of the first things we do is we decide, is it going to be a place that people come to or are we going to go to where people are? That's a fundamental uh, difference and it changes the, the, the nature of any production. Is it itinerant or is it a fixed uh, environment? And then is it seasonal? And basically try to profile it. It's very important. And it's, it sounds like we're trying to target an audience. And in a certain sense, we are. But we're not trying to entrap them. We're trying to understand who they are and who it is that we want to talk to. And then we have to have a concept. There has to be a concept. And in the concept, 
in the old days, concept was some sort of odd blue sky and then we'd put it on paper and some technical person would give us an idea whether it was feasible and then someone would put numbers on it and we'd all cry and then we come back. Now things have really changed on all possible scales, even down to um, exhibitions in, in museums, which have become entertainment to a certain degree almost now. So you need a concept and you need an audience and you need to be able to figure out the longevity of that and take risks. Then there needs to be money and there needs to be visibility. Creating a, a work of art without any visibility is a problem. So the, the double-edged sword of marketing is a fundamental component in terms of that and it needs to come on board early because marketing is a question of communication, diffusion, if you will. They need to know what it is that we're proposing to audiences. Audience need to know that we're proposing it, not just in terms of ticket sales, but also just in terms of creating the context for this happening. So there needs to be money, there needs to be demographics, there needs to be scale, and you need to decide if it's gonna sit somewhere and bring people to you, or if you're gonna go out and find them. Those are quite fundamental, and obviously, then there's the cash. The cash is incredibly important. However, the cash needs to be managed in terms of timeline deliverables. Very often, the idea is when you buy something, that it's going to have a certain result. And that result is very contingent on the time that you allow to do it. If you adopt a child, the child is already born. If you inseminate, you got to wait nine months. <laughs> There's no way around that. So that incubation period, the gestation period is incredibly significant in the production mentality, which is happens to be, in, in my opinion, one of the major rubs that we have in almost everything that we produce on all the scales. Everyone wants to do it faster then it's actually going to be able to happen. So in, in production, a production team or directors or whatever need to know for whom you're producing it, and it's on, on, a, on a crux. You're producing it for the audiences, but you're also producing it for the people that are commissioning it. And that communication in terms of production, the biggest rub that we have is money and time, and they're directly linked. And that all that conjugates directly in terms of what you actually have as an artistic product. So the producer really has to understand the necessity of the timeframes and the necessity of the deliverables in terms of money. And then the concept needs to be appropriate. We've seen some beautiful works that were produced for audiences that were inappropriate and they tanked. And we've seen other ones that weren't that way. So if that's in any way addressing your point, uh, that's what I think in terms of ingredients. How do you manage those timelines? How do you adjust? How do you think and take into consideration this inception time? Experience and knowledge uh, and some consultation. Obviously, uh, we don't reinvent timelines. Certain things, uh, hopefully, I uh, say, for instance, now in COVID, let's talk about COVID while we're here. The timelines are going to be quite uncertain for us because some of the suppliers that we've had don't exist anymore or even getting things in and out of countries has become different. Transportation. So if, if I were to produce a show now that we're meant to go on tour somewhere and I would be calling all of our old buddies, I would have to do a really different study now in terms of producing, in terms of timeline deliverables, not in terms of the creative incubation, but just the pragmatics of getting stuff in and out. You have to know what you're talking about. I think that is, to answer your question, you need to work with people that know what they're doing and what they don't know, they have to be humble enough to go find out from people that do. A lot of the times also in, a, in producing a show, uh, whether it be a corp, uh, often when it's a corporate entity that are not used to doing creative projects, there's not a lot of understanding with the money people as to how to quantify the creative process. So as a, as a producer, what do you, how do you quantify for the money people how long a creative process needs to, to take to, 
needs to be laid out for you know they you want you need 10 weeks and they say we'll do it in four how do you defend that 10 week period that you're looking to get out of out of your creative process to to the money people well in my my personal experience uh the money people they're not wrong but they're going to always ask you well why not and rather than oppose them what i've often been in a position of saying is if your imperative is this has to happen in four weeks as opposed to 10 the answer is yes, but it will have these implications. And is that what you want? And that answer is often no. In many situations, if it's a very large scale production, the, the producer will not necessarily be a creative producer. So what the many companies have done, including the Cirque du Soleil, they've in, introduced sort of a, an intermediary role of a creative producer or director de création, a creative director, which does not replace the stage director who's doing the staging and the artistic content but it is a question of being in a crux position between the production deliverables and that immense amount of coordination and efficiencies that have a direct relationship to the money that you spend and the creative result. So that crux role of the creative director, director creation, if you will, that the Cirque and many other things have come with is essential communication for shows like that. Because there, your, your creative incubation is not just a question of is it beautiful? It's a question of physical skill acquisition. If you don't give it that time, you will not be able to do those kinds of shows because there is a physiological reality linked to that content. So we've often interjected a, a creative director into that to be able to quantify and defend that to the production and investment board to explain to them and quantify and qualify what the implications are. And sometimes the creative director will come back to the creative team and say, we have this new imperative and this is what it's going to do for us, but it's not just a cut. It's, it's a readjustment. And actually there has never been one show to my knowledge that has gone onto the stage with everything that we'd intended to create. Yeah. So I guess that means that putting a team together that manages that a high performing team is really important and getting the right people in the right position. So how do you, how do you go about that process in terms of putting a quality team together? Very excellent question. There's, there's, a, there's a certain degree of working with people that have the survival skills that have been confirmed. That is <laughs> quite significant. And also looking at where it would be. Say, for instance, we're going to be working in a territory with someone who's an extremely good production director or creative producer, but who's never worked in a, in a multinational situation someone that would be accustomed to have maybe, I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, produced four shows in Las Vegas. It's immensely uh, challenging to do that, but many of the parameters are quite familiar. If you take an individual like that and say, well, we're going to do a theme park show in Jakarta, that person might not necessarily have the, the suppleness to accommodate that many variables. So in that particular situation, I'd look for a team that had dealt with very, very pressing timelines and extremely unstable uh, local supply. And so you're gonna have to look for someone's predispositions to deal with the challenges. A skill set on itself or even just a track record doesn't quite do it. And it, personally, I've, I work a great deal with, I don't say my gut, but I do spend a great deal of time trusting people when, they're, when their basic attributions are to have the potential to do it. What I often do is look for somebody that has all of the skills, but not necessarily on the level that we need them but they know how to develop each one of those. And it's incredible how adaptable those people are as opposed to an old dog like myself who comes in with a method. So I think it's incredibly significant to have people that, that, are, that have all the chops, but that know how to develop them 
they have more potential for me than somebody necessarily comes in and shows you how it's done. And how do you transmit the vision of the project or your idea to the team? So it's not a bunch of, you've selected the people and the team you want to work with, but now you have to make them work together and work towards, embrace this idea and take it up to a mm. reality. How do you? Okay, well, then, then we're always going to talk about the, the one of the words that I loathe, which is leadership. I don't like the word leadership. I use the word adhesion. So what's really important in terms of a concept or even a working method is that we have an adhesion to what it is that we're doing. Say, for instance, a watering hole, okay? You don't line up for a watering hole. <laughs> they all get around it, and it, we, but we all know what it is. So there's a central focus, which is not the leader in front of you. Yes, there are degrees of hierarchy in terms of responsibility and authority synapses, but it's very important to have a degree of adhesion. So if you don't have a concept that's strong, it's going to be very difficult to transmit that concept. Uh, I've had challenging situations where the concept was quite ambiguous, so I decided to focus on our work method that we were going to decide if we had more time to train a lot of people. On one of the shows that we developed in, in Macau, we actually worked with a group of people that were going to be going into operations meaning owning the show and living it and running it, but we brought them into the production almost 100% in every sector. So they didn't necessarily have production skill sets, but because we had the time, we allowed that entire mass of work to be built by the people that were going to be moving into it, which is atypical, but it actually had, in my opinion, a very significant value for the quality of the creation and not just the fact that everybody learned what the operations were going to be they really had a degree of, of uh, adhesion to the project. There's no question about delivery, champagne, ching ching, good luck, bye. In my opinion, that kind of uh, transfer from a creative production team and just sort of a handover, I've never seen a successful example of that. It's just not a successful example. So in terms of transmitting the, the concept, you need to try work really, really small in the initial stages. We can be specific. There's, a, there's one uh, stage director, his name is Franco Dagon, and he works with a very, very, very small, not exclusive, but small, like kernel, like a little, not a kernel, like Colonel, or Colonel Sanders, but like a, <laughs> like, a, like a nut, like a very, very, like a seed. And then those people have a huge amount of responsibility to develop that seed so that when you transmit it to somebody else, you're not just telling them how to follow the design concept and then come back for more information. And that is one method of work which gives a huge amount of responsibility to people, which is beneficial. But at the same time, if they muck it up, <laughs> you really gotta, it's a big risk. But in my creative, I've also worked a lot on shows that have already been built. And that's another thing is trying to get people who are coming into a show that already exists and how to propagate it in such a sense so that it continues being creative as opposed to just shoes uh, running out in a conveyor belt. There's a very famous uh, Imagineer in Disney. His name is Joe Rohde, and he, they develop immense projects. And he works on a very, very small scale in the very beginning to use this idea of transmission rather than instruction uh, to the point that the people that are going to hire someone to like build door handles are going to have understanding that that door handle is part of a door, which is part of a room, which has an environment. And uh, that, that, that person inspired me a lot. And I'm not alone in that respect uh, from him having inspired me in terms of his perspective, because he said it's impossible to micromanage door handles, but you need them. <laughs> when it comes to you've worked 
all around the world and you've worked with the numerous circus-based shows and you've worked with a number of, not just a number, a lot of different cultures and you also speak multiple languages, which I've always been impressed about. How do you manage working across culture and, and, and managing different cultures? Because, you know, like you said before, going from Vegas over to Jakarta is one thing, but when you're bringing a whole, like, you know, people from 30 different countries into the one room, how do you cultivate the ability to deal with all of those cultures and manage it knowing that they all come from a different vision, even some different disciplines? So some are coming from dance and some people coming from an acting background and some people are coming from in a circus environment, either sports acrobatics or gymnastics. How do you how do you sort of channel those demographics into one vision in terms of, uh, of a production? You have to include them. <laughs> if if we don't include them, then you can't because then you're going to be trying to diversify your focus in terms of transmitting a specific vision to 30, 30 nationalities. And I, I very much appreciate the distinction that you make between nationalities and culture. Uh, because a culture uh, within, say, for instance, even acrosport, let's call it that, between Ukrainian techniques or a sort of microculture of acrosport in the Ukraine versus Poland, it's not a question of their nationalities. Even within certain clubs, it becomes quite iterated in many, in many ways. What my personal experience has been, I'll go back to curiosity. As you and I well know, when we were developing uh, the show in Macau and we were going to be bringing freestyle motocross into the show, there's not a culture or a nationality in that. We had people from Georgia that were basically coming from very poor backgrounds that some of them weren't even necessarily literate. That doesn't mean that they're not smart, but they weren't literate necessarily. And then we had people coming from Australia who'd been studying to build industrial scale military weapons. I mean, literally, we had a guy that built bulldozers uh, with tanks and stuff. And then we had a guy that was a, worked, lived out of a trailer. And then we had someone that came from Spain and a guy from Sweden. Oh my God. And so they didn't have a microculture within that. So what we tried to do is understand that we're creating a microcosmic culture about the language of that show. So we brought those guys together. And rather than to teach them what our show culture was, we were going to try to figure out what made them tick and then try to contaminate them in a positive way. And we did. We brought them and we respected their culture, allowed their identity rather than dismantling it. And then we contributed to their identity with gentlemen that come from Tanzania, they're doing pyramids. Or people that are coming from China that do Tai Chi that don't even really necessarily speak English. So we were able to take everyone's, like their, their silos. Everyone says in management that there should no, be no silos. I completely disagree. I think silos are incredibly important because you need to uh, respect the, um, the microcosm, but you just need to be able to share that. And I don't think that trying to uh, pretend that we're going to have a cultural cohesion is necessarily even realistic, quite honestly. We've even had situations where there was uh, racial prejudice within our shows, which we didn't necessarily cure. We addressed it. We didn't cure it, but we addressed it. We didn't go beyond it. We didn't go around it. We addressed it and we made sure that there was a conduct within us and a respect that became the tonality they, they were on. And some of those people that might have had racial prejudices or other prejudices in terms of sexuality or even age, whatever, they can still go home and be those kinds of people. But when they came to work, the environment that we established was not just intolerant of that, but we would even allow it. I think you remember very well what I'm speaking of. And when you actually really practice what you preach, it's amazing how strong that is, particularly if you're in a role of, uh, of responsibility. It's not a question of talking the talk. You really need to do that. You really need to do that. And it wasn't easy for any of us. 
to uh, necessarily deal with people. For me, having someone that comes from Georgia uh, who doesn't really read and who throws garbage cans because they get upset. I have a hard time necessarily accepting that that's uh, acceptable behavior, but I'm going to figure out what happens. And because I was able to open up and understand what made that person tick, I was able to get that person six weeks later to come to a dance rehearsal because I took the time to care, which was a stretch, I will admit. I want to touch on the part of creating, creation, innovation. How do you come with new ideas? I feel like sometimes we look around and we see that pretty much everything has been invented, but there's always room for something different. Mm. But I feel that can become a challenge if you have a deadline and you have a deliverable. And how do you keep yourself innovating within a world this competitive. I'll try to be as as, uh, as non-philosophical as possible, which is difficult. The most important thing about a golden egg is that it's golden. Everyone wants to build a golden egg farm before they even have a golden egg. I'm like, come on, guys. So innovation, in the middle of the word innovation is, is nova, which means new. Okay, that's cool. So are we innovating because we have something new to say, or are we innovating because we want to do something different than our neighbors? That can be keeping up with the Joneses if you have an American vocabulary or whatever. The The idea of innovative technology, for instance, as one, one thing, innovative technology, okay, is it art or is it artifice? Because if your technological novelty doesn't have any reason to be in your show, it will be outdated instantly. And then you can go back and see shows that have been in existence for a couple of decades. And if that technological innovation was part of the vocabulary and then somehow pertinent, it remains. Even if the technology itself is, is outdated, its language is not. There are people that are still doing new versions of La Traviata and they shouldn't be raised off the planet. Well, another thing is if, if you do it really, really well, it's amazing how powerful that is uh, in terms of concept or even just in terms of execution. I believe that if you have really, really, really gifted people on that stage, and I don't mean only cast, but in terms of the stuff, if, it, if, it's, if it's really good, It's amazing how powerful that is, even if it's another version. I mean, if, if someone could come out with, yeah, as I say, La Traviata, or, or, or in, even if someone came out with a new version of West Side Story, which would surprise me. But if it's really, really good, it's going to work. If it's brand new with all kinds of stuff flying all over the place, and it doesn't work like one musical in New York, you had everything in the world to do it right, and it went into the ground, even with gifted people even with immensely gifted people, because it didn't have any cohesion. So I think before we worried about innovating, just because we're trying to do something different than the people that are already successful, you have to have an, a, a language. We use the words DNA all the time. I don't really like that because it's not a genetic thing, but that's just me being picky. I'd rather say, if you don't have something to say, then don't. <laughs> 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 Sorry to be so cheeky, but... <laughs> In our artistic terms, if you don't speak, you cannot... Or how do you generate that vocabulary of that language? How do you generate your own ah, voice? Okay. By speaking, I was not meaning necessarily that it would be text-driven or even within, within song. Uh, that's been one of the main changes in our entire entertainment and theatrical... Uh, spectrum over the past 30 years for a very specific reason, which became a sort of an entertainment norm. And you, you cannot go around the Stade du Soleil when you're talking about that. However, dance 
has been in existence for centuries and is by definition nonverbal. That doesn't mean that we don't use dance in a conjugation with many different things which are different multimedia. People have been doing innovative multimedia for a long time. Martha Graham <laughs> came out of the middle of nowhere and created an entire lexicon of dance, which is one of the most versatile forms ever. Pina Bausch, groundbreaking 45 years ago without lift systems and lasers and all the other you know, bits and bobs and all. But the most uh, popular has, of course, been the Cirque, working with a theatrical experience that's non-text driven. However, those shows, almost all of them, have thematic, iconic juxtapositions that create a line, but they aren't dramaturgical in, in its essence. So in terms of story, uh, not only one of the uh, directors, but a lot of them, they all backed off of that. And they created, like, Landscapes, I mean the the the, the landscapes and and the icons. So working with cultural icons that are not necessarily allusions is very very important because it's a visual image that touches people's own backstory. Let's use the uh, the idea of the Lord of the Rings. It was a musical. It's also a, like five books that would, if you really wanted to do the Lord of the Rings as a musical, it would be a one week experience. But because everyone had read the books and seen the movies, more or less, when the musical was done, people filled in a great deal of the story by their own acquisition. And that same idea in terms of icons having to do with good and bad or, or different characters and all the rest, we use that a lot in terms of the language. So from a dramaturgical language, we tend to be a little bit less literal in the, in the sense, in the literal sense of literal. Um, and, and we do that a great deal. It's a very challenging thing to do. And the, one of the most challenging ones is to reproduce the ideas of cartoon films, if you will, or like, like the, the Incredibles. You can't stretch or animations. I mean, it's, it's, Disney's actually done that really quite well, but they went really story, less than the plasticity of the characters. So they went super, super story, but they were always text-driven. They were always text-driven in their shows because they went down the musicals. And if Disney wanted to go in a nonverbal, it would be very challenging because then you have to deal with the visual and it's all in terms of the characters, the, just the plasticity of the environment is incredibly difficult to reproduce. And I can talk about Spider-Man. Let's talk about Spider-Man. The plasticity of that character is in the environment, creating just, that, just the plasticity of the environment itself, not even talking about the flying, is incredibly challenging to get that same impact, what you get in an image that's animation. Or even now, Avatar, good luck trying to recreate Avatar. You cannot create that plas the plasticity of that environment. It's, uh, we can try. It's just not very successful. Mm. Mm. What would you, switching back to you, what, what would you say is the thing that you like best about your job? Oh, my God. Well, the, the incredible uh, overstimulation of it. Very overstimulated. And uh, I'm blessed in many ways because I have, uh, uh, it seems, I have an exceptional memory. So being exposed to that many things is fantastic, but it's not that fantastic if you forget. <laughs> so, I mean, having that kind of exposure is amazing. And then going back to the curiosity, I mean, I was always immensely, immensely curious. Uh, and I don't view that as a, as a superior attribute. It's just a fact. It's like your nose is pointed, your nose is round. I mean, I'm this curious kind of guy. Uh, which also means that I can be very dispersed, by the way. So there, 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 there are disadvantages to that. But the curiosity that I've had uh, has allowed me to be very, very exposed, even in a very uh, contained environment, to multiple things within that one microcosm. I don't need to do five shows 
to have the kind of experience that I had in one because I really went all around the inside of it. And if you immerse yourself in an environment like some of the bigger ones, you're dealing with scientific level intelligence every two seconds, but in a completely different way. Uh, that, that has been amazingly stimulating, but it's not my favorite part of the job. My favorite part of the job, and it's going to sound incredibly corny, is the interpersonal relationships. It really is. And I have a, a, a way that I try to deal with that, which is just my own way. We talk about um, gaining trust and earning respect. I absolutely differ with both of those. You don't gain or earn either one of those things if you don't have that much time. If one has, if you just manifest, if you trust people, and if you respect people, say for instance, there's 10 steps between you and me, and I take one step and you take one step, then there's still eight steps in between us and we don't see each other for six weeks. That one step means nothing. When I see you for the first time and I really connect you, if I take all of my five steps or even six, our relationship is already 50% trustworthy and respectful already. And if you take two steps or three or even four or five, then we have that. And once we keep that connection, we can go away for a while and it remains like a synapse between us in these organizations. It's so important to like plunge into it in the interpersonal relationships, particularly with the numbers of people that we see. I really feel that to wait for time to just sort of let respect and trust develop is BS. You got to do it. And one of the advantages is if I take all five steps in your direction and you treat me poorly, I can take a few steps back. It's easier for me to step back than to step in because it takes such a long time to develop those relationships in an incremental way. But it also means that you're vulnerable, whether you like it or not. So I have been burned very, very few times. So that incredibly brazen approach that I've had over the past 45 years of, of career has got me burned a few times. But proportionately, what I have gained and been able to actually give to others is so much in the positive that I will retain my brazen nature of I'm just going to plunge in with both feet and I'm going to be in your face, respecting and trusting you. And if you act like somebody that doesn't deserve it, I might back off. And if you could change anything, what would you change within the industry or with the way we do things, the way we work? I would hope that if I could change something, which would be somewhat contextual, we don't give ourselves enough time to learn other stuff. We get so focused on progressing in our disciplines or actually going from one show to the next or even one job to the next because we have to because there's a societal pressure about success and all the rest. The idea that if you go through a floating period where you're assimilating stuff, that some of that you've got to, you have to have a burnout before you decide to find yourself again. Why? I mean, why do you have to completely burn out before you get back to essentials? Have we gotten that far away? There's something really unfortunate in our society, I guess, and in our industry, because our industry is an iteration of our society that the, the trajectory is so uh, driven that people often forget to learn from each other. And I don't mean you have to go home and listen to podcasts or even this one. It sounds very heretic for me to say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the conversation that we're having is a conversation that we would have directly. We're just able, fortunately, thanks to you, to share it with other people. But get out of your office. Get Turn off your bloody radio, get out of your other stuff, and 
learn from other people and go learn other stuff, even if it doesn't seem like it's a toolbox. If your toolbox only has tools in it, it's not a really cool thing when you get older. I mean, I've been very lucky to be old. I'm an older person. I've had a very fortunate span of, uh, of time. And I'm actually very fortunate to have actually had to like find a library. There were no databases when I started studying all my different theatrical language. And if the library in my hometown didn't have those books, I would have to write to the publisher to find out what they had. You couldn't even go to a database to find out what other libraries have. Um, and I know it sounds very rustic, but there's a certain chutzpah in that, which is good. But I'm also completely on top of the technical thing, and well, to a large degree, and incredibly uh, enthusiastic about the, the, the plasticity of our, of our knowledge sharing. It's fantastic. But I'm very lucky to have been able to do that. So I've got all the hunger of someone that had to like hitchhike to the library and all of the enthusiasm of somebody that actually is totally cool with apps. Learn. Keep learning and never stop. Because the odd thing that you find, it's kind of like when you put on a, a, a party jacket and you go somewhere and you put some, someone's business card in your, in, your, in your pocket and then you pick up the jacket again six weeks later and you pull it back out. You have these treasures that you don't even know what they are, but it's just good to assimilate them. And just mm. staying only, only a craft focused, I think, is uh, good for a certain kind of development. But at one point, you got to just got a bit of peripheral vision is a good thing. Wow. This is very inspiring. Thank you very much. And uh, we appreciate you being here with us today Anytime. and sharing with us. Anytime. And uh, hopefully in the future. And, and uh, in terms of people taking care of themselves, uh, yeah, take, uh, take care of yourselves and all the, the, the way that we're supposed to do that. But um, I, have a, I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in uh, the, 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 the fact that we're all going to have to, I guess we had like a global burnout. So let's not have to have a global burnout again before we ask ourselves why we do what we do. Absolutely. Thanks again, Matthew. We, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show again at another point. Okay. Take care, and Thanks so much. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast. Let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.